Recorded live. You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Take a break from your busy schedule and join Harold Sala for Guidelines. Five-minute commentary on living. A salesman would starve to death unless he learned to close the deal. No matter how marvelous his presentation, he never says, okay, if you folks decide that you want to buy this, now get back to me and I'll take your order. There is one more step. He must close the deal. And that's where motivation comes into the picture. That's why salespeople will often get to the bottom line and say something like, Now, if you sign on the dotted line today, we will throw in a bonus which is absolutely free. Actually, there's nothing in the world that is really free. It costs someone something. The price is factored in, but you like to think you're getting a deal. Something for nothing appeals to our greedy natures, so the incentive motivates us to act, to sign the purchase agreement, to move. What about incentives as a tool of motivation? Say, for example, you tell your kids, get good grades and you get your own cell phone. Before I respond to that question specifically, I'd like to point out there is one thing which should never be used as a tool for motivation, and it is your love for a child or someone else. Unwise parents send a nonverbal message that goes, if you make good grades, stay out of trouble, and otherwise make me proud of you, I'll love you. But if you embarrass me or get into trouble, forget it. The deal's off. Furthermore, when you make a promise, whether it is to your child or to an employee, don't forget. He won't. And when you fail to come through, he will remember it for the rest of his life. How do I know? I will always recall the disappointment I felt when I was a teenager and won a contest and the promised trip which was to go to the winner, never materialized. I'd also like to point out that an incentive is different than a bribe. An incentive can be positive, healthy, and has a point. There is a difference, at least I'd like to think so, though I admit the difference between the two seems to blur at some times. The reality is that life rewards those who excel and penalize those who fall short. And though God has no black book with columns listing our good deeds and bad deeds, when we get to heaven, we will be rewarded according to our deeds. So says Paul, writing to the Corinthians. Now Paul determined to run the race with patience and diligence, looking to Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith. He told Timothy that a soldier doesn't get entangled in the affairs of life so that, quote, he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier, 2 Timothy 2.4. Again, he said, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. The reality is that rewards and incentives are a major factor in motivation, whether it is to succeed in your business, excel in your studies, or prepare to knock on heaven's door with the anticipation that you will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. Now, a final thought. Doing things only because we have an incentive 
can be a policy of selfishness. Doing them because it is the right thing to do with no thought of compensation is really what keeps the world running. It keeps our children fed and clothed and mothers moving in the morning while incentives are okay used properly. They are not really the pillars of life that keep us moving. At some point, we need to learn to do the right thing because we know that is what God requires of us and we want to please him and besides, it works. That's self-motivation. Think about it. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. So wrote Paul to the Corinthians. That is the highest kind of motivation, doing the right thing, because you know that's what God expects. If you would like to go to our webpage, you can download what you've just heard, or write to us and we'll send it to you in print. Our homepage on the web is www.guidelines.org. This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.
And good morning, just the early morning gospel program, morning inspirations here on Talk Show and Jam Radio. Our morning scripture is coming from Psalms 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear unto me, therefore I will call upon him as long as I live. The sorrows of death compress me. The pains of hell got hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then called I upon the name of the Lord, O Lord, Lord, O Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord, and righteousness, and righteous ye, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low, and he helped me. Return to unto thy rest, O my soul. For the Lord hath dealt Bountifully with thee. I read to you the 116th Division of Psalms, verses 1 through 7. Word of God. For the people of God.
We just got those elderly people who don't have heat. We pray for that that don't have that you know, send somebody send somebody there that would help them uh have heat in their homes. Well we 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 lift up our school children who get ready to go to school this morning. We pray they have no hurt, harming danger, Lord. And we pray that they'll be going to school safely. We pray for those, Lord. We lift up those um, school bus drivers who send it to, um, who drive the kids to school. And we lift up the teachers. danger to anyone, to any school board, you know, and we pray that no schools don't have to be locked down today, and Lord, we just families to you, even broken families, we, we know, Lord, you could put things together, Lord, we just our families, our friends, our church family, our neighbors, Lift up our pastor. Lift up every minister, every every everyone who's who's a clergy, part of clergy. Lift up our cities to you. Lift up our government to you. Lift up even lift up the candidates who's who's running for president in various other offices throughout the country. Touch Vanessa, top of the silver feet. We thank you, Lord, for the healing. We thank you once again, Lord, for everything, even just the smallest thing. We thank you. Guide the servant, Lord. Continue to guide the servant and keep him humble in every possible way. And we thank you. And of that, we say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. We will return at the top of the hour. More gospel expression will be the and thank you for being part of this of this podcast early in the morning. What is special to Jerry Radio two point one?
Have you ever read something in the Bible and wondered, what in the world does this mean? Well, today we have the opportunity to bring some of those difficult questions to Bible teacher, author, and pastor, Mike Fabares, right here on Focal Point. Welcome to a special edition of Focal Point. I'm your host, Dave Drewy, and I'm glad to have you here with us. For the next half hour, we'll sit down with Bible teacher, author, and pastor, Mike Favarez, to answer some pressing questions from listeners. And if you'd like to pose your own question, you're invited to do so by visiting focalpointradio.org. But I'll share more details about contacting us later. But right now, let's join Executive Director Jay Wharton from Inside the Pastor Study. Thank you, Dave. Pastor Mike, a somber but important question today on Ask Pastor Mike. This listener writes, is hell a real place? Yeah, unfortunately, the Bible would want us to always remember that hell is a very real place. Uh, The book of Revelation talks about the end of time, everyone who does not have his name written in the Lamb's Book of Life being judged according to the things that they've done and then being assigned a place in uh, what in that particular text is described as the lake of fire, Jesus talked about it as a place where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, a place that's very unpleasant, a place of abandonment. Second Thess says it's a place where God uh, removes his glory from that place. So all the goodies that people enjoy about common grace, uh, friends and family and all the things that they might think that they might do, you know, without God in hell, there's not a lot of uh, doing of anything that's going to be pleasant because God has taken his majesty and his glory and removed it from this place of abandonment, and not to mention, as Revelation 20 says, there's an active sense of punishment for people doing what they've done with the knowledge of right and wrong, and God says he's going to judge people according to their deeds. Some people will say that we just cease to exist when we die if we're not going to heaven. We call it annihilationism. Where do we find that, or where do they get reference to that in the Bible? Yeah, well, Revelation 19, verse 20, talks about the false prophet and the beast being cast into the lake of fire. It says they were thrown alive into the fiery lake. So you could say, well, they're thrown alive there and they must die. Well, then a thousand years later in Revelation chapter 20, it talks about the devil being thrown into that same lake, and it says where, where the beast and false prophet were also thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So we know that the false prophet and the beast, these two human beings at the end of time, are going to go to a place that the devil then is sent to, and then it says they, not he. It wasn't like, you know, they went into this incinerator, and now the beast and false prophet are gone, and uh, now the devil's going to take his turn in the incinerator, and then he'll be burned up. It's clear that they're still there after all this time, and they're going to be continuing to suffer the consequences of their sinful rebellion day and night as an ongoing expression of an ongoing reality. Pastor Mike, a lot of people are going to struggle with reconciling the concept of hell or the actual nature of hell with the nature of God or the character of God. He's a loving God. Why would he send people to a place of eternal punishment? Well, because he's not just loving. He's also a just and holy God. And even the passage I quoted at the outset in Revelation chapter 20, knowing that he judges people according to their deeds, uh, reminds me that he's a loving God. If everyone had the same experience in judgment, that wouldn't be very loving you got some people clearly that are rebelling much more against God's standard than others, a lot more, you know, many more expressions of their depravity than other people. So God, in his love, 
is going to give people exactly what they deserve. And I don't think there's any, as I've often said, fist shaking in hell saying I don't deserve to be here. Even in the story that Jesus tells about the rich man and Lazarus, you know, there's no debate from the rich man that he's in a place that he deserves to be. His only concern are for those that still have an opportunity to avoid that place. And he says, send uh, you know, Lazarus back or someone back to warn my brothers not to come here. So I think everyone will recognize when this life is over that all the judgment of God is going to be just very appropriate and loving. It's going to be exactly what it should be. It's not nice, I realize that, but God is not just one-dimensional. He's not just loving. He's also just and he's also holy. It would be like kids in detention at school sitting around being punished for their sins and, and breaking the rules during the day saying, well, our teachers aren't loving because we're in detention. Well, if it were about, I suppose, just doing nice things, and, and if detention didn't seem like a nice thing, then you'd say, yeah, I guess the teachers aren't loving. But maybe the teachers are loving. They just happen to also be teachers that are going to keep the rules, and they're also just, and they care about standards of behavior in class. So when people are in the lake of fire and when they experience this, not everyone's experience will be the same, and there will be, I think, a, a real sense of justice on the part of everyone that people are getting exactly what they deserve. Even we see that in our own justice system. A person caught for stealing is treated differently than a person caught for murder. Sure, and, and any justice system has to mete out justice according to the sin of the person, the crime of the person, and that's where we see God's justice in this civil law that he set forth for Israel in the Old Testament. Not every sin was punished the same, and restitution was different depending on what it was. Uh, you know, whether it was a capital crime or whether it was a crime of, you know, making restitution, these things were different based on how severe the crimes were. So God is a God. He's already showed us in the law of Moses that there are differing punishments for differing crimes. And as he then takes the tribunal at the end of time and assigns people their judgment, it certainly it will be the same way. Not everyone is judged the same. That's why that repeated phrase, he will judge them according to what they have done, is so important. Now you look at Christians on the other side of this, and we think, well, we've done a lot of those things, too. Uh, a lot of Christians, you know, getting saved late in life have done a whole lot of those things throughout their lives. But because of the cross, the Father punishes all those things. And Jesus suffers hell on that cross and an eternal payment right there so that we are not ever condemned for our sin. And that's why, like the rich man in that story, we want people to listen to the Word of God and hear the opportunity for salvation and not have to suffer the punishment for their sins. You just touched on that, but how should that inform us as Christians as we go out into the world? Speak a little bit more about that. Well, yeah, if there were no hell, I guess there would be not a lot of fervor and focus on evangelism or missions. So it's absolutely critical that we understand this yeah. concept. Well, I think it's going to change how we go about the problem. If you don't think there's really a danger in a house, let's say it's a carbon monoxide uh, you know, alarm has gone off, and just because you can't see it, you think, well, I don't know, I don't really want to persuade everybody to get out. If they're comfortable where they are, I guess we'll leave them. But if it's real and that alarm is accurate and the alarm of the Scripture has gone off and saying sin is a problem and it will be judged, then we should go in there because we believe there is a judgment and say we've got to get out of here. We have to escape this, as it was put in the book of Acts, this perverse generation and be uh, snatched out of this generation of being part of the church. They called out ones, saved by God's grace, and never to incur the punishment for our sins. And that is an offer that stands for everyone as long as they live. And that death, then the opportunities are over. It's a point on a man wants to die, the book of Hebrews says, and then comes the judgment. So it should motivate us that until people die, they have opportunity as we bring the gospel to them to not 
incur the penalty for their sin. Well, thank you, Pastor Mike. I know that was a very hard question to tackle, but as you've mentioned, it was a very important truth that we need to address. So we're going to end this conversation with a message that you've done on the urgency that eternity should stir in us. You called the message, Loving Enough to Tell the Truth About Hell. By far, the most famous piece from this celebrated French sculptor, Auguste Rodin, as the Europeans like to pronounce it, is the work that came to be known as The Thinker. You know the one. A contemplative man sitting on a rock in desperate need of some clothing, um, looking down with his chin dug into the back of his hand, right? Frequently, it's used as an image in college catalogs and on websites to represent the field of philosophy. But actually, Rodin carved and created this statue just over 100 years ago, not to have us think of philosophy, but to have us ponder the tenets of theology. See, he initially entitled this work The Poet, not The Thinker. And the one that he had in mind was the 14th century Italian poet named Dante. Dante, you might remember, was the one who wrote this epic poem, the first installment of which is, in, is called Inferno, which is the Italian word for hell. Now, Rodin created this image to be looking down and to be pensively and reflectively pondering those who were entering what Dante and he called the gates of hell the portal, the entrance to hell. Now that uh, scene is disturbing. Best, if you ever get a chance to look at a, at a good representation, a, a good-sized cast of what we call the thinker, you'll see his face is not uh, trying to untangle you know, some philosophical question about, you know, I think, therefore I am. This is a man who's gazing down at a tragic scene of men and women shuffling into their eternal abode, lost men and women scene is made even more poignant if you've ever read Dante. When Dante described the gates of hell, he described it in his poem with an archway over the top of it that read this, through me you pass into the city of woe. Through me you pass into the pain that is eternal. Through me you go among people lost forever. Justice moved my exalted creator. The divine power made me. Before me, all things were created eternal, and eternal I will stand. Abandon every hope, you who enter here. Now take in for a moment what Rodin intended for you to come away with as you see the poet looking down at this scene and imagining the fate of lost men and women departing into outer darkness away from the presence of God and into their eternal retribution. 3,000 years ago, Solomon wrote, there's a time to laugh, but there's also a time to weep. There's a time for dancing, but there's also a time for mourning. It seems like modern Christians, they don't have any time for weeping and mourning anymore. No place for that. We avoid it at all costs. But we cannot be honest students of the Bible without recognizing that as we read through the text, we're struck with a lot of difficult and hard doctrines that any thoughtful Christian should be uh, impacted by in a really poignant way, with pain and weeping, and Calvin said, with great dread. 
I'd like to begin, number one, on your outline by having you jot down a very simple phrase that I hope will become the pattern of your life. It's what Rodin's statue was intended to invoke in your heart, and that is that we would routinely ponder God's judgment. Do you understand what's at stake? I mean, if this is all just bedtime stories and fairy tales, well, then move on to something else. There are better ways to teach your kids morality. But if you understand the real issue, that we have a sin problem that is going to lead us to the just tribunal of a holy God, and the only response is God pouring out his retribution, his just and measured retribution on sinful people, and that we celebrate the death of the Lord Jesus Christ because there's one place in the universe where his justice has already been. And the deal is this. You cling to that with a repentant, contrite heart. You don't have to suffer the condemnation that you rightly deserve. If we don't get that, we've missed the whole point. Look at some red letters of a little bit, of a preview of what Jesus continually says about this topic. Turn to Luke chapter 12. I'm tired of being castigated by our society, even our Christian culture, for talking about things that Jesus wouldn't leave alone. Stop with your little caricatures of, oh, just this hellfire and brimstone preacher. Well, I guess you might as well put Jesus there, too. He wouldn't stop talking about it. Verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, they have nothing more they can do. Now, I'm afraid when I think someone's standing before me who has the intent or the motive or the, the, the ability to kill me. I don't like that. That's a scary situation. But Jesus says, listen, it's really nothing by comparison. Because once they kill you, Mike, that's all they can do. When you're, when you're done and you're at the morgue and you're on the, on the gurney, it's, what else can they do to you? There's no more pain they can inflict in your life. Verse 5. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed the body, that's enough to disturb people's little flowery image of Christ right there. Christ is talking about a God who can today put you in a mangled car accident in South Orange County and end your life. He has the power to do that. He's the God of all providence and sovereignty. But that's not all he can do. After he's killed the body, he has the authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. I can look through all the David Cook and, you know, all the kids' VBS material I want, and I'm never going to find a, a theme based on that verse for our third-grade curriculum. But in a generation that's coming on the heels of another generation that's already spent almost a lifetime neglecting this doctrine, we're the generation that, as other writers have pointed out, that will deny it. I'm thinking it's not a bad idea to remind our third-graders what to Oh, we don't want to scare Susie and Billy into becoming Christians. Did you just read verse 5? Did you read it? I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed the body, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Night, honey. Sleep tight. Jesus doesn't seem to have the same constraints as you do. Scare people into heaven? Wasn't real concerned about that, apparently. Yes, I tell you, fear him. I don't like that kind of preaching. Great. Let's just go on the record. You don't like Jesus' preaching. Because this is the incarnate Son of God. Turn to verse 49. Verse 49. We've talked this about this many times. There are two installments to the advent of Christ. 
Advent 1 and Advent 2. Advent 1, he came to bear our sin. Advent 2, those that are unrepentant receive his judgment. Look in verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth. Now there's that image, that motif, that analogy of his judgment. This is the picture of his judgment. Now look what he says. Oh, I really don't want to do it because I love those people. Is that what he says? Is that what the next phrase is? Underline the next phrase. This is not how we picture the modern Jesus. And would that it were already kindled. Do you hear the disdain and frustration in his voice? As he walks through the streets and, and hears gossip and he sees people with lustful eyes and hears about adultery and hears about greed and bribes and kickbacks and he listens to all the things relating to murder and divorce and homosexuality and a feminism being exalted in society and all the theaters and what's going on. He says, oh, that it were already kindled, ready to start the judgment on this planet. Jesus of the Bible. God, if he is not just, is not good. And if God is not good, he is not God. I don't know how many times I've said that. How important is this doctrine? I need to routinely ponder the judgment of God. Let it motivate you, please. We've got a job to do. Paul said this. Clearly he wasn't. This is Romans chapter 9, verse 2. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I wish that I myself were accursed and separated from Christ so that my kinsmen, my, my brothers, the, the Jewish people, could be saved. He wants to trade in his salvation for there. I mean, I know this is literary and rhetorical, but what's his point? It's killing me that my friends are going to hell. Have you even struggled over that lately? Thinker, the thinker. Let me see the image. Remember what Rodan wanted you to think about. Your friends don't repent and put their trust in Christ. I'm not claiming you as a religious Christian or anybody you'd want to go listen to lead a Bible study, but he certainly captured what Dante was going for, and that is this. You better understand what's at stake. It should affect you. A place where you're motivated like the Apostle Paul to do something about it. It's almost a comical statement that comes next in Luke chapter 3. I get the fact that he's continuing on the theme. He's holding our head over it, man. There's going to be judgment for those that are unrepentant. I got it. And, and we've learned from it. Let's routinely ponder that. Let's regularly go back to think about that. But then this weird statement in verse 18. Are you with me here? Luke chapter 3, verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Like the soundtrack just changed in verse 18. What are you talking about? You've been talking about axes at the root of the trees. You've been talking about cutting fruitless trees into the fire. Now you're talking about chaff being burned up. And you're telling me this is good news? Really? Well, there's a lot of other things, too, he kept talking about the good news. What good news is that? I think what we need to recognize about the good news of Jesus Christ, which is different than the good news of most people today, it seems, people that have no time for the bad news, is that the good news of Christ is predicated on the bad news. And I, I'm sorry if this is preaching to the choir because you've heard me say it 25 times, but there is no good news without the bad news. If I don't understand why I'm building the ark in my backyard, if I don't recognize why I'm telling my neighbors to get a seat on the ark, if I don't really ponder the fact that drowning is a terrible way to die, then it's all just an exercise in academics. It's all just say, hey, you want to get a picture by the ark I'm building? Really cool, isn't it? It makes no sense. I need to, number two on your outline, to see the good in telling the truth. 
See, a major component of the gospel is the bad news that sin requires God's justice to punish us. If you don't have that, you don't have the truth of the gospel. Hey, in a day when everyone's careful not to hurt anybody else's feelings, I was amazed a couple summers back with my obligatory family trip to D.C. to move into the Jefferson Memorial. After having gone to several, I was done. Dad's usually done after the first one, but I walked into that one reading the marble walls there. In the northeast panel, Jefferson Memorial, there was an excerpt from one of Jefferson's letters. Not a paragon of Christian theology, by the way. There was something there on the wall that I thought, you know, we're not even courageous, it seems, in our evangelism to talk about God's justice. But here I am in a, you know, taxpayer national park reading about something that causes an Orange County pastor to pause and go, wow, that's it. Can we at least have the boldness of the phrasing from the northeast panel of the Jefferson Memorial? Which, by the way, if you look up the original letter that Jefferson wrote, he's talking in the context about the wrath of God. And then he says in the next line that's inscribed on the wall, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. If you're not bold enough to talk about hell and the torments of unquenchable fire, can you at least have the boldness of Jefferson Memorial? Have a little conversation this week about, you know what, I just tremble at the thought of God being a just God and that his justice isn't going to lie dormant forever. Turn for you about the justice of God. See, because we as Christians are either part of the problem or part of the solution. If we're overly concerned about hurt feelings or achy bellies, you're going to redact the message and just we'll, we'll reduce ourselves to nothing other than a bunch of impotent, ineffectual do-gooders in society. You go from almost one church website to the next and that's what it is. Or you be part of the solution. Perhaps as we started, it makes you look down and ponder in your imagination those who will enter the turnstile of the eternal abode where there is no hope. And a God who rightly dispenses that kind of justice on the impenitent and we've done our job here today. In light of what we heard, the reality of eternity should motivate us to share the good news. Today's message was part of our regular Ask Pastor Mike segment, and you're listening to Focal Point. Before we wrap up today's edition of Ask Pastor Mike, let me tell you how you can send us your Bible questions. You can go online to focalpointradio.org and click the link marked Contact Us. Or you can post your questions using Facebook or Twitter at Facebook.com slash Pastor Mike and Twitter.com slash Pastor Mike. And when you make a gift of any amount today, be sure to ask for this month's featured resource. It's a Christian classic called Fox's Book of Martyrs. This stirring collection contains the dramatic, true stories of men, women, and children who gave everything to follow Jesus. Fox's Book of Martyrs includes the testimonies of Christians from the early church to American missionaries of the 1800s. Let their stories of persecution and perseverance strengthen and inspire your own faith in Jesus. Request your copy today when you give a donation of any amount to Focal Point. Ask for Fox's Book of Martyrs when you call 888-320-5885. 
or give a donation and make your request online at focalpointradio.org. Our number again is 888-320-5885, or look for Fox's Book of Martyrs online at focalpointradio.org. We don't have to wait another week to have some of your Bible questions answered. We've posted engaging Bible Q&A videos right on our website, featuring answers on cultural, personal, and biblical topics. Check them out at focalpointradio.org. I'm your host, Dave Drury, inviting you to enjoy the weekend, but make sure to come back here Monday when Mike Fabares shares timely instruction from the book of Hebrews. Be here next week for Focal Point. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries. on Jam Radio 2.1.
This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.
gone with the wind. If you don't care what folks said about this family, I do. I have told you and told you. She was brilliant, but her character was a classic Hollywood stereotype, and the film was controversial among blacks. Like so many African-American actors, she had few options to play anything but a servant. Early in her singing and acting career, she worked as a domestic in between jobs and later said, why should I complain about making $7,000 a week playing a maid? If I didn't, I'd be making $7 a week being one. She wanted to be buried at the Hollywood Cemetery near the other famous actors, but when she died in 1952, the cemetery was whites only. Last October, on the anniversary of her funeral, the cemetery's new owners dedicated a memorial to Hattie McDaniel. She's near Douglas Fairbanks, and not too far from Rudolph Valentino. Great party, huh, guys? Yeah, oh, it yeah, is. That's so great. much fun. Uh-huh. I do say so myself. Um, hey, did you know that birthday parties actually help build confidence in kids? Um, yeah, I did know that. Did you know that giving kids less sugar before bedtime helps them sleep better? Right, of course. Yeah, I knew that. Um, did you know that strollers have the right of way on sidewalks? <laughs> oh, yeah, I knew that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Did you know that friendly kids statistically have more friends? <laughs> Everyone knows that. Oh, yeah? yeah? Pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Obvious. Hey, guys, did you know that most people think they're using the right car seat for their kid, but they're not? I didn't know that. <laughs> I think I knew that. No, I didn't. Parents who really know it all? Know for sure that their child is in the right car seat at the right age and size. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat to make sure your child is protected. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. You are listening to Morning Inspirations on Jam Radio 2.1.
come on and God bless anything said in the name of Jesus Christ for the best of every time. <laughs> no, all the Muslims and all the crew, remember to be on them down for Jesus Christ. Lift them high. And not the earth of Christ. Bust the place. Bust the place. No, no, no. Bust. Yeah. This song right here is dedicated to all my people that felt like giving up. And you didn't think you were going to make it.
this is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Yeah. 
about the wisdom of the ants in gathering and storing food for the winter? This is the Creation Moments Minute. Bible skeptics claim that Proverbs 6, verse 8, is nothing but a myth because no such ants have ever been found. In the last few years, however, their laughter has stopped. We now know of three different species of ants that gather and store food. And guess what? Two of these species are native to Bible lands. Evolutionists tell us that they are sure the first real human beings weren't even smart enough to gather and store grain and seeds. It's obvious that ants who gather and store grain and seeds are totally unexpected by evolution. But we know that we have a creator who provides for all the needs of all his creatures, even ants. For CreationMomentsMinute.com, I'm Darren Marlar. Should churches use surveillance cameras? Legal insights for pastors. Here's a word from attorney David Gibbs, Jr. A pastor of a very new church called the Christian Law Association with a problem. He knows having two adults present at all times with children is a safeguard against liability. With such a small congregation, however, having two adults in the room was often difficult. Our attorney suggested consider using surveillance cameras. The law allows property owners, in this case the church, to install and use surveillance cameras on their own property. The church can now have more adults attend the main service and know the children at the church are safe and watched for. 
If you have any questions about the use of surveillance cameras, please call us at CLA. If it's been a while since you've been to our website, you really ought to check it out. ChristianLaw.org is a virtual tool shed of legal tools, legal advice for pastors and ministries, answers to difficult questions, links to helpful PDF files, and much more. Then there's our Legal Alert newsletter and a link that lets you contact a CLA attorney. So check it all out at ChristianLaw.org. Again, that's ChristianLaw.org. Amanda, age three. Tyler, age eight. Marissa, age four and a half. We could tell you just how many child abductions last year led to Amber Alerts. Shaniqua, age 14. Ryan, age nine. But this isn't about cold statistics. It's about saving kids. Terrell and Jamal, age six months. Please go to wirelessamberalerts.org. Sign up to get free Amber Alert text messages on your cell phone. When an Amber Alert is issued in the areas you've chosen, you'll receive a free text message. If you spot the vehicle, the suspect, or the child described in the alert, call 911. Sign up today for free at wirelessamberalerts.org. You can imagine what the family of an abducted child is feeling. Alexander, age 7. If you actually did help save that child, just imagine what that would feel like. WirelessAmberAlerts.org. A child is calling for help. This message brought to you by the Wireless Foundation, the U.S. Department of Justice, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and the Ad Council.
against God and against man. I believe that on the third day, by the power of God, you were raised from the dead as living proof that my trust in you tonight is not in vain. I believe that as Christ was raised from the dead, so tonight, Almighty God, you are raising me from the dead, from the death of sin. You are giving me a new life, the life of Jesus Christ. Oh God, on my testimony and the belief in my heart and according to your word, at this moment, I believe I am saved. I am saved. I am saved. Hallelujah. Saved. 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 Oh, let me ask you, friends, in closing tonight, have you done this? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you come to that obedience of faith? Have you come to that place of true repentance and true faith? Have you turned around? Have you forsaken your sin? Have you turned around? Have you forsaken your sin? And are you trusting alone tonight in Jesus Christ for your salvation? For there is no other way, there is no other message. For there is no other way, there is no other message. Oh, come to him. Come to the Saviour tonight. Come to him just as you are. Come to him in your sin. Come to him in all your needs. And cast yourself upon his mercy and upon his infinite grace. And cast yourself upon his mercy and upon his infinite grace. And cast yourself totally to him. You too will enter into that joy of sins again, peace with God, and eternal, abundant life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. For how will you escape if you neglect so great salvation? For how will you escape if you neglect so great salvation?
You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Take a break from your busy schedule and join Harold Sala for Guidelines, a five-minute commentary on living. A salesman would starve to death unless he learned to close the deal. No matter how marvelous his presentation, he never says, Okay, if you folks decide that you want to buy this, now get back to me and I'll take your order. There is one more step. He must close the deal. And that's where motivation comes into the picture. That's why salespeople will often get to the bottom line and say something like, Now, if you sign on the dotted line today, we will throw in a bonus which is absolutely free. Actually, there's nothing in the world that is really free. It costs someone something. The price is factored in, but you like to think you're getting a deal. Something for nothing appeals to our greedy natures, so the incentive motivates us to act, to sign the purchase agreement, to move. But what about incentives as a tool of motivation? Say, for example, you tell your kids, get good grades and you get your own cell phone. Before I respond to that question specifically, I'd like to point out there is one thing which should never be used as a tool for motivation, and it is your love for a child or someone else. Unwise parents send a nonverbal message that goes, if you make good grades, stay out of trouble, and otherwise make me proud of you, I'll love you. But if you embarrass me or get into trouble, forget it. The deal's off. Furthermore, when you make a promise, whether it is to your child or to an employee, don't forget. He won't. And when you fail to come through, he will remember it for the rest of his life. How do I know? I will always recall the disappointment I felt when I was a teenager and won a contest, and the promised trip, which was to go to the winner, never materialized. I'd also like to point out that an incentive is different than a bribe. An incentive can be positive, healthy, and has a point. There is a difference, at least I'd like to think so, though I admit the difference between the two seems to blur at some times. The reality is that life rewards those who excel and penalize those who fall short. And though God has no black book with columns listing our good deeds and bad deeds, when we get to heaven, we will be rewarded according to our deeds. So says Paul, writing to the Corinthians. Now, Paul determined to run the race with patience and diligence, looking to Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith. He told Timothy that a soldier doesn't get entangled in the affairs of life so that, quote, he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier, 2 Timothy 2.4. Again, he said, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. The reality is that rewards and incentives are a major factor in motivation, whether it is to succeed in your business, excel in your studies, or prepare to knock on heaven's door with the anticipation that you will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. Now, a final thought. Doing things only because we have an incentive can be a policy of selfishness. Doing them because it is the right thing to do with no thought of compensation is really what keeps the world running. It keeps our children fed and clothed and mothers moving in the morning. 
while incentives are okay used properly. They are not really the pillars of life that keep us moving. At some point, we need to learn to do the right thing because we know that is what God requires of us and we want to please him. And besides, it works. That's self-motivation. Think about it. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. So wrote Paul to the Corinthians. That is the highest kind of motivation, doing the right thing, because you know that's what God expects. If you would like to go to our webpage, you can download what you've just heard, or write to us and we'll send it to you in print. Our homepage on the web is www.guidelines.org. This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.